We all want more freedom, and a lot of us work hard now in the hope we'll feel free later. What if there was another way? A way to feel happier, more free, and confident to get better results right now. Welcome to Your Freedom Unlimited, where we share practical stories and strategies to help you show up authentically, drop your fears, and take inspired action on what matters most to you. I'm your host, Jen Ramsey. As a coach with a love for metaphysics, science, spirituality, and strategies that get results, I'll help you step away from self-doubt and create a powerful new story for your life, business, or career. Join me. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Your Freedom Unlimited with me, Jen Ramsey. And I would like to introduce you this week to a very special guest of ours, um, Dean Radin. Dean is the is PhD and Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and also a Distinguished pro- Professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He has a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering, magna cum laude with honours in Physics, and then an MS in Electrical Engineering and a PhD in Psychology from the University of Illinois. Before joining the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Dean worked at the AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, the University of Edinburgh and SRI International. And not only has Dean done all of this work, he's also an incredible communicator and author. He has given over 500 talks and interviews worldwide, and we're very glad to have you here today. He is a co-author or author of hundreds of scientific and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, two technical books, and four popular books translated so far into 15 languages. They are The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and his most recent book, Real Magic. So, Dean, I'd just like to welcome you here today and say thank you so much for spending your time with us. It's my pleasure. We really do appreciate it. And I think we've got an action-packed interview ahead. There's just, uh, I've got so many questions for you. But I'd always, here at Your Freedom Unlimited, I'd love to dive into a little bit of the backstory. Where did all this begin? You have degrees in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology. What led you to the work that you're doing right now? Uh, I was one of those kids who read the equivalent of Harry Potter uh, and never grew up. How gorgeous is that? <laughs> so we know that the children, of course, are, were attracted to Harry Potter and then there are all the fairy tales and other similar stories before then. But a lot of adults are drawn to those same stories. And so uh, we can tell from our entertainment world, from television and movies and books, that the idea that we have special abilities, special mental abilities, is long been part of, of the narrative that we tell ourselves. From an adult psychological perspective, we can say it's wishful thinking. You know, we were, the world is uncertain and we try to figure out ways of making it more certain. Uh, I always wondered whether it might be something more than that. And so I also paid a lot of attention to mythology and to science fiction and to stories about people who appeared to actually have special abilities. So neither myself or anybody in my family ever reported anything psychic, but nevertheless, I read a lot as a kid and I always wondered why are these stories so compelling other than wishful thinking? Mm. 
So when I was a teenager, I discovered that there was a branch of science that asked that same question, namely parapsychology. And it was using the same tools and techniques as every other science to try to answer what, what are these experiences that people have? And I read a lot of that literature and I was convinced by the time, even before I went to college, that, there, that these are real phenomena. There's, there's something going on. What makes it so interesting then is that uh, these types of topics in, typically within college, when you have a Psych 101 textbook, uh, it's completely dismissive. It would only describe these kinds of phenomena as being uh, mistakes of reasoning or probability or coincidence, and not even considering the possibility based on the science that was available that there was actually something interesting going on. So I just was, I, I was disturbed by that missing piece. And in college, I decided that if there was a way to earn a living to, as a scientist to study these kinds of things, that's what I wanted to do. So I figured out a way to do that. Wow. And electrical engineering was your best path to do that? That was a path you felt was the... No, that was completely pragmatic. Right. That, that was, uh, my original career track was classical violin. So I, I played the violin for 20 years and thought that's what I was going to do until I started uh, speaking to people in my family and friends who were professional musicians. Mm. Every single one of them said, if you can do anything else, don't do music as a living, mm. do something that's more pragmatic. So I asked, well, what, what's, what would be better? And he said, well, engineering is good. So I always like to tinker with electronics. So I figured, okay, I'll, I'll try that. And maths and music go so beautifully together. So you would have had a really natural aptitude in that space, I'm assuming as well. So, wow, what a fascinating. And so from violin, playing the professional violin through to what you're doing now and your, your decision to do your PhD in psychology, was that getting you a little closer to the study of parapsychology and where you wanted to go? No, it, it had nothing to do with it. Uh, the, the reason why it looks like a major switch is because I was interested in graduate school in cybernetics and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So both have to do with uh, ways of modeling cognition, modeling the ways that the mind work. Uh, and so to go into artificial intelligence at the time, this was the mid seventies, there was no curriculum. So you kind of had to make it up yourself. Mm. So when I finished my master's degree, I had to decide two directions to go into. One would have been the hardware side of artificial intelligence. That's things like making parallel computers or today quantum computers, or going into the software side where it, it's dealing with uh, how to simulate the mind. Mm. So there was only one faculty member at the university at the time who was into that, who happened to be in psychology. Right. So that it sounds like a major jump, but it really wasn't. So it was really just that, that's very interesting. And there was that opening there. People had looked at the hardware, but you were more interested in the software. And certainly with your work now, you're definitely looking at the software of the mind, that's for sure. So when did you then make this move into this research and this, in, this, in this space of, of parapsychology and then the move? I know you went to the Institute of Noetic Sciences in 2001. What, what facilitated that move? How did all of that happen? When I uh, graduated with my doctorate, the first place that I uh, interviewed for was at Princeton University, which at the time was just starting a laboratory for the study of parapsychology at Princeton. So 
I suspect that I, I would have been offered that position, except I was advised by the people there that this would not be a good thing for a, uh, a beginning doctoral student to start their career with. Do something more conventional and establish yourself and, and learn how the, the rest of the world works. So I did that. That's why I went to Bell Labs, which, which at the time was the largest uh, laboratory in the world, big science. They developed the transistor and the laser and a whole bunch of other things. So that was a proper move at the time because mm -hmm. I, it, uh, it established that uh, I was uh, competent and effective in a large laboratory. And I learned how the engines of big, big science works. Mm -hmm. uh, after being there for a couple of years, I knew I didn't want to stay. It was inherently okay, but it wasn't exciting enough. Mm. So part of my job at Bell Labs was to study why redundant machines fail. So as you may know that the, the telephone switching network is all computers. It even was back then, this is the early eighties. And the computers are designed in the telephone network to be triply redundant. That means that they, if they could fail three times and it, it should keep working, nevertheless, sometimes they, they do fail, even triple redundant. So we, we would go in and try to figure out why did this thing fail? Well, sometimes it's because a, a mouse got in somehow and ate a piece of circuitry or there was an electrical fault, but around 5% of the time there was no known reason. And so I, since I had read the literature of parapsychology, I said, uh, maybe it's something about the human operators that they're, the person was angry that day or something happened where the presence of an individual interrupted the machine. Hmm. So I got permission to actually do parapsychology tests at Bell Labs to look at what wasn't a, a, a human machine interaction as much as a mind machine interaction. This was the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So I did some experiments and convinced myself that yeah, so something about intention can interrupt the, the behavior of a, of a machine that's doing subtle tasks. And at that time, machines are doing a, probably about a million telephone switches a second. Wow. So if, if one of them is off, it can throw the whole thing off. Mm. So that's somewhat subtle in terms of what, it's, what it was doing, but usually very reliable. How fascinating is that? So here you are, you followed the conventional path and I do understand I, I, and some listening may not understand that, but there's been there's a lot of pressure and a lot of still a lot of pressure around this field of parapsychology in terms of its credibility versus main mainstream science. And I put quotation marks around that. So to take that conventional path was probably very sensible if you knew eventually where you wanted to end up. But here you are in a conventional, very very large lab doing parapsychology. So what did you find? Well, so the, the uh, I'll just uh, take a little segue here that. It is quite true that from a mainstream perspective, these kinds of phenomena are considered to be extremely controversial because a lot of, a lot of scientists would say that they're literally impossible, mm. in which case if somebody's presenting evidence for something like telepathy or precognition or whatever, uh, the, if it's impossible, there's only two possible explanations for the evidence. It's either fraudulent or it's flawed in mm. some way because it can't be real. So that's sort of the main, that, that's the, the image of what the mainstream says. What actually happens is quite different. That most scientists and engineers actually not only believe in these phenomena, they have the same experiences that everybody else has because they're humans too. Mm. So 
the, what you what happens though is that as an academic or as a scientist, you learn very quickly not to talk about these things. How we they, they they happen to the people in the National Academy of Sciences. I mean, this you know it's a human thing that happens. So we're talking about a taboo, basically, that, that prevents people from expressing public interest. But I know, having given lots of talks to governments, to industry, to lots of places where you think people would be very hard-nosed, everyone's interested in it. There's always a standing room only in the, these crowds. So we did a survey where, where I am now at the Institute of Nordic Sciences, among scientists and engineers, where we ask them, what kinds of things have you experienced? 94% or 93% said that they had experienced at least one of 25 kinds of different experiences that would be called psychic. Wow. How so, interesting. 94%. Yeah. That's so an overwhelming uh, majority of people said that they had personally experienced it. So they didn't say anything about what they believed, mm. just what they've experienced. Mm. So we, I was not too surprised at that result, actually a little bit that it was so high, but that uh, we, I, I have known because of the communications I've had and the interactions with people in lots of different positions that everyone's interested in this. Mm. It's really a fairly small percentage of very loud people who are the hard score, hardcore skeptics who just don't buy any of it, but it's a pretty small minority. How interesting is that? I mean, it's really, so it's almost, it is this taboo little secret that no one talks about, but it's, it's actually there. And I was fascinated when I read in Real Magic, you, because you have such, you give such a great and comprehensive history of, of these phenomena throughout his, uh, throughout history. And you talk about even Isaac Newton was interested in these things, but he, it's almost like his, his resume has been cleaned, has been, you know, some of the things have been expunged from his, from the work that he did, but actually he was very interested in this, in this stuff. So as, as were virtually all of the founders of modern science. Hmm. But the, the one that's even better than the, the case of Newton is Francis Bacon, because Francis Bacon is considered to be the father of empiricism, which is one of the core elements of science, where you test things rather than simply rely on theory. And so in one of the original books where uh, Francis Bacon writes down what he meant by empiricism, he uses the example of something he called uh, the uh, force of imagination, which was his term for psychokinetic effects. And he said that the way to test it then is through something that would have a subtle, uh, a subtle behavior like the tossing of dice. So he predated by 300 years but later would become one of the ways of testing whether the mind can influence matter through the tossing of dice. Wow. So, and I want to get back to Bell Labs in a minute. We're, we're going to go back there because I want to find out what you found out in that, in that lab. But so why do you think there is this, this cloak of mystery and this taboo around these, around this parapsychology when it is, when you say 94% of people that you've, scientists that you've surveyed have had personal experiences why is there such a cloak and a taboo and a silence around this when obviously people are experiencing this who are scientists? Uh, two reasons. One is that uh, the nature of these kinds of phenomena is very closely related to what is described in religious texts. Mm. 
So if you look at the Bible, for example, the Bible is full of all of these kinds of phenomena. And so scientists, uh, not always, but often are trained to keep very far afield from religious ideas because religion is all about believing something without testing it, all about faith, and which is completely anathema to science. Science is all about testing things, and then maybe you'd believe in it. So part of it is simply an image that the people who spend a lot of time promoting psychic ability either come from a perspective where they're using it to support their religious ideas, or they're coming from a perspective where anybody who talks about these things is doing the work of the devil. Right. Yeah. So it splits in two directions. Both of them, neither one of them says to pay attention to this. One because it's the devil and the other one because it looks like it's religion. So that's part of it. The other part is that uh, every scientific curriculum now uh, teaches about materialism, which is the philosophy, which is the, the, at the core of science, but it does not teach that materialism is a set of assumptions, mm. some of which are true and some of which are not so true, just like any set of assumptions. Uh, nor do the vast majority of, of people who end up being scientists ever take a course in the philosophy of science. For that matter, even the history of science. Mm. So I, I remember when I was a graduate student, and I, I was never required to take a course in philosophy and never thought, why would I even want to take a course in philosophy? All that somebody would have needed to say at the time is that everything you do as a scientist or an engineer is based on assumptions. It's based on another set of beliefs, right? Really what you're saying there. Well, it partially beliefs, but, but more importantly, uh, assumptions which are simply guesses about mm. the way the world works. Now, materialism works really well as a set of, of guesses. And so, and it allows us to do this interview, right? We're almost literally on the opposite ends of the planet and this seems to work pretty well. So that's all based on materialism. Where materialism doesn't work very well is when it comes to human experience mm. and particularly to consciousness, to our sense of awareness. We don't know how a material substance like the three pounds of tissue inside your head can be self-aware. Mm. And that, that's a major mystery. And it's an important mystery because the, the only thing that any of us will ever know comes through our awareness. Mm. And everything else is an inference. Yes, there's a, there's a lot that's still unknown there. And that's, isn't it called that the hard problem now? Is, isn't that known in scientific circles now as the hard problem? Yeah. The mm. easy problem is how does the brain act as an information processing system? Mm -hmm. That's what the neurosciences are looking at. The hard problem is how does this material object give rise to subjective experience? In the first place. And is that to, to, and I do want to get back to the Bell Labs, I'm not finishing there, but is that really then where the Institute of Noetic Sciences comes in? Is this where you're sort of bridging that gap, looking at this? I understand, you know, you're looking at that interplay between science and this inner knowing, this consciousness. Is that sort of the work that you're doing there? Yeah, our, our mission has slightly changed over the years. Uh, it began, uh, our, it was founded by Edgar Mitchell who was the Apollo 14 astronaut and the sixth man on the moon. Wow. 
And he had an epiphany on the way back from the moon to the earth where he had a mystical experience. Really? A very classic mystical experience where he felt at one with the universe, not as a concept, but as a, as a way you put it, a palpable feeling that you and the universe are the same. Uh, which from the point of view, you would imagine that an astronaut is as hard-nosed materialist as you can possibly get. Uh, and materialism works well enough to get him to the moon and back. That, that wasn't magic. Uh, and nevertheless, the experience happens. And it wasn't just him. Lots of other astronauts have had similar kinds of experiences, but they don't talk about it very often. And so the, the question arises then, uh, going to the moon and picking up rocks and doing all the science and everything, that's all quite real. This was real too, this experience. And so he said, well, maybe we could use the tools of science to figure out what does a mystical experience even mean? What is that? And what does it tell us about the nature of reality? So the Institute's almost 50 years old now, and we've, from the beginning, uh, taken a scientific approach to look at these experiences that in, in a single description would be that they transcend the usual boundaries of space and time. Mm. So that covers psychic experience, mystical experience, uh, and actually even ordinary experience but uh, it's the transcending space and time element of it, which makes it so far still anomalous. How fascinating is that? And how great that you're dedicated to that space to actually find, do that. And, and we'll dive into this a little bit later, but in terms of your, your general work there, so I'm assuming you're, you're finding some scientific basis to these, to these phenomena that people experience. Well, the idea, most of the research up to about 30 years ago was called proof-oriented, which was simply to say, is this, like if somebody has a precognitive experience, is that really what it is? Mm. Or somebody has a telepathic experience or clairvoyance or whatever, that has been settled for a long time. The answer is yes. So the, the experiences sometimes will be coincidence and sometimes it's delusion and sometimes it's confabulation. Sometimes it's real. So we're interested in, in the real part and trying to figure out then uh, how do we make the effect stronger in the lab because it'd be easier to, to study uh, and, and also figure out what do these kinds of phenomena tell us about who and what we are? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, partially we are as, as the people in AI used to say, we are machines made of meat. Mm. We are partially that, but we're more than that too. So we wanted to understand more about what is, what is the rest of us that, that seems to not be a machine made out of meat. And not only that, how does that, how would, whatever that is, whatever we want to call that, it's interacting with a machine made out of meat in some way. So it tells us something about the nature of reality. Wow. That absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So let's, let's rewind. So it's really about understanding Yes, these, these big picture questions that I think humans have asked for millennia, really, isn't it? I mean, these, who are we? What are we doing here? What is this all about? And um, so fascinating that you've, and I understand you've got the world's largest team of scientists looking at this. So it's, it's no small en endeavour that you're involved in and that you're leading here. So how fascinating. I want, I want to jump in and understand more of that in just a little while. But just let's rewind back now to you're in the Bell Lab, you're doing your first parapsychology experiment you know, officially, 
what did you find and, and then how did that lead you forward then back to where we are now? Uh, that wasn't the first, I, I mean, I was already starting in graduate school doing experiments. But oh, okay. I suppose the first within uh, a recognized organization. Right. So one of the experiments was uh, precognition. Uh, but the one I think that, the, the one that I, I got uh, explicit permission to talk about was the interaction between mind and matter. So we were using a, a random number generator based on radioactive decay, and we were trying to use the mind to influence the speed of the radioactive decay. And so I used myself as a subject and used my colleagues as subjects, and overall we could do that. And that should be impossible by any conventional uh, reasoning, uh, but nevertheless, it happens. So I was able to justify doing that kind of experiment as a controlled way of testing whether a person's intention could interact with a machine in any way mm. and, and showed that it did. So I got permission to publish it. Um, and it was as a result of going to a conference and talking about that, that I attracted the attention of people in the US government who had a secret program at the time where they were using these kinds of effects for espionage. Wow. So I took a leave of absence from Bell Labs and, and joined what, what at the time was a top secret program that was using remote viewing, clairvoyance, basically, uh, for espionage. So it was at that point that I realized that, uh, first of all, the level of, of talent that I was able to see within that program was way beyond anything I had ever seen before. Mm. And I decided that if there was a way to spend the rest of my career doing that kind of research, that is the only thing that I would ever want to do simply because it was so strange compared to what was, what was happening in the rest of science. I mean, it's telling us something very fundamental about who we are and what we're capable of. So when you're working in a classified environment, nobody outside can know what you're working on. And when you're working in a top secret, especially code word project, people can't even know what the code word is. So it was very strange in that we were working on a project which basically said that there are no secrets, that, that through clairvoyance, you could find out information about anything anywhere in space or time. We we're regularly doing that. And yet the program is top secret. And so it wasn't until years later that we learned the Russians had at the time, the Soviet Union had, had a very similar program to ours. Wow. And maybe the Chinese had one too, or they still have, we don't know. Uh, so the, the, within these uh, strange environments of uh, classified uh, world, people are doing all kinds of strange things that outside that domain, people would say is impossible. And yet, we were studying it. Again, it's the taboo of the taboo that we were talking about earlier. That's, Dean, what a fascinating background. And too, I mean, again, when governments at this level are, you are studying this, this, this phenomena, it's starting to give real credence to, uh, to what's going on, isn't it? So, but I'm, I guess what I'm hearing you say is at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, you're actually able to, you're openly studying this, this work now. Right. Mm. Yeah, I decided that it what didn't make sense to, study a phenomena that says there's no secrets within a secret environment. So we're completely public domain in everything that we do. Mm. Well, and, and great that you are because that information can come out to the mainstream and, and can, can be of value, I guess. And that's, 
that's, I guess, and it'd be a value to the to the to society as a whole. And that's, I guess, where I, I wanted to go to next was that was to really look um, at at what you uncover in Real Magic, which I think is it's a fascinating book, and I really do recommend everyone listening to get a copy of it. Dean's writing style is fantastic; it's very amusing, um, but it's also he gives such an excellent overview of the history of of magic in our society again it's this taboo if if my interpretation as i as i read through particularly the first part of the book about the history is that it it seems to be this idea of magic and and these things that you're talking about humans have always been fascinated by it we've always had some process or we've always been studying it but it's always been a bit kept under wraps and a bit taboo throughout society so what led you to, in Real Magic, you talk about how real magic shapes the world that we live in. What, what led you to, to write this particular book? Uh, the book just before this one I called Supernormal, which is looking at the Eastern esoteric traditions, primarily yoga. Oh. And so the yoga tradition is interesting because classical yoga, meaning what Patanjali wrote about a few thousand years ago, in his uh, famous Yoga Sutras book, one of those, it's, it's four little books all tied together. So one of the chapters in that four, four chapter book is about the Siddhis, which is a Sanskrit term meaning attainment roughly, but we would interpret it as a psychic ability. And so what potentially was writing about, and he was writing, he was putting into print an oral tradition, which had already been around for a few thousand years. The, the knowledge that if you do meditation long enough and you achieve certain states like samadhi and you do certain practices like samyama, that you will start to experience certain kinds of effects. So he lists 26 different cities in the book, which today we would call somewhere between psychic phenomena and magical. And this was not written as magic. This was written as these are guideposts along the way when you start doing advanced forms of meditation this is simply the way it is. Mm. So I, I knew about that. And I knew that a lot of people are interested in yoga and yoga as it's practiced around the world today, even in India is more of an athletic event. It is. And, and less so about the meditation aspects of it, which is its original purpose. Mm. So that's what, that was the origin of the book to write about yoga, but to add in there that, Oh, by the way, these powers that are supposed to arrive from meditation that's real. Mm. He wasn't making it up. It's giving giving credence again to to what the ancients knew. And as I said to you before we started this interview, I've just become a yoga teacher. So I've always been I've been fascinated by the practice that yoga is. And I agree with you. It's sort of it's been reduced to a bit of a yeah, athleticism and, and how to get fit by some people. Others come to it for different people come to it for different reasons. But, um, you know, when you come to the path of yoga, you are sort of drawn in and then you go on a journey with it. And certainly that's been my journey over many years now. And, and to then understand and experience meditation and then come to meditation more deeply. So, so Patanjali certainly knew what he was talking about and, and now your science is proving it up. So, so, so that book was about Eastern esoteric traditions. Mm-hmm. That's what yoga is considered. Probably mm-hmm. not so much anymore. It's worldwide. Uh, but it, it follows ideas that have come out of the East. And then uh, it occurred to me that there's also a Western spin on it, and particularly a Western spin on the idea of the cities. 
and that's what we call magic. So the, the cities are written in a way that, uh, that, that are more specific in terms of the kinds of abilities that people can attain. Magic is sort of all over the map, but what I tried to do in, in my book, Real Magic, was to say there's certain similarities in Eastern and Western esoteric ideas. And when you, you look through all of the similarities and it's kind of sifted down, it just falls into three different kinds of practices and three or four different mental states, basically. Mm. And that's true for yoga and it's true for magical practices as well. And perhaps we could we could dive into that now. I mean, you, there's the, the states you mentioned, you mentioned meditation. Um, you mentioned in, in Real Magic this the science of, of coherence. Is that one of the is that one of those those states that you're talking about? So we're talking about the application of attention mm-hmm. and intention, typically with states of resonance with the object of attention. So you can think of that as a state of coherence. It's it's similar in that in both the cities and within magical practice, if you wanted to gain telepathy, for example, the first thing that a modern person would think about is radio, because that's that's like what we think about in terms of sending signals and that's not what's going on. What's happening in, in these uh, states is that the, uh, the appearance of separation between you and the object that you're trying to be telepathic with, it could be human, it could be an animal, it could be anything else. You begin to recognize in certain meditative states that the, the idea of separate objects is actually an illusion. Mm. The brain created illusion to give us a sense of the spatial separation of objects and that we have to move among them and so on because we're embodied. But the actual nature of it is much subtler than that. And they're actually not quite so different. In which case, if you wish to have a telepathic communion with your friend, you become your friend. You, you go into a state like Samadhi mm-hmm. where you have, you become one with, you become a union, which is the origin of the word yoga it's the union with the object of your attention. Mm-hmm. And when that union is complete, the reason why there's a telepathic connection is because there's no difference between you and your friend. That's yeah. how it works in magic. That's how it works in, in yoga and all of the other traditions. So a lot about these traditions is about uh, seeing through the, uh, the illusion of separation. Mm-hmm. In fact, in a way, that's almost a way of saying what what mystics try desperately to talk about their experiences. They're all talking about the disillusion of of the illusion of separation. And this speaking to this whole notion that the idea of unity consciousness and and the the, the all being the one. So on a practical level, for those who perhaps might not have experienced samadhi or done yoga or any of these, perhaps these other practices, what you're talking about here, though, is when, say, you go to ring someone and then they say, oh, I was, just, I was just thinking of you or I was about to, I was just about to call you. I mean, this happens to me very frequently. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Right. So that's telephone telepathy. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people also will have precognitive dreams. Mm-hmm. They'll wake up and maybe won't quite remember the dream until something will happen during the day and they suddenly say, dang, I just, I had that. I had that in, in my dream. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of ways that these phenomena will spontaneously appear in people's lives. Uh, What we do in the laboratory is we evoke it. Mm. We we have to evoke it 
because we can't wait around for someone to be spontaneous. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> we can evoke it uh, often enough in the laboratory, so that's how we're able to study it. That's right. So it is, and that's what it shows. It's a, it's a phenomena that you can actually you can actually study. So I just think it's all it's very it's all fascinating. Um, one of the things, let's talk a bit now about this idea of coherence, and then we'll, I'd like to talk a bit more about intention and attention and and so on. Um, but here on Your Freedom Unlimited, I'm often talking about the fact that we are, you know, the, my philosophy is that we are the creator of our own reality. And it appears from the work that you're doing, the scientific work that you're doing, that that certainly bears that out. Um, I guess could you've studied this notion of coherence and and you've studied it at the, at the level of societal coherence with random number generators and things like that. Could you mm -hmm. just share with us a little bit about that, about what's, what's happened there and then what you've, what you've witnessed with these random number generators? So we use this device called a random number generator, which is an electronic circuit, which uh, where the, the randomness in the circuit is traced down to a quantum event. So there's, there's semiconductors that are called diodes and you can arrange it in such a way that uh, electrons can only get through a forbidden energy zone by tunneling through it. That's a quantum mechanical phenomenon. So we know that it happens, but when it happens is considered to be fundamentally random. That's, that's like a basic tenet of quantum mechanics. So you can take advantage of these random little pops as the electrons are moving through the, the diode to uh, to condition it and eventually have the circuit produce bits, random bits, zeros and ones. And so you can test the sequence of zeros and ones against all kinds of different testing suites to demonstrate that it is called truly random, meaning that it is, you, you cannot infer what the next uh, bit is going to be because it's completely random. Uh -huh. So it's a very fancy version of coin flipping, basically or dice throwing. So it's a modern version where we can use computers to record it. So the reason why we use that is because when you, you think about, uh, uh, especially when you think about ideas of coherence, co a coherent person, a coherent group, a coherent anything means that there's a certain predictability and pattern associated with it. By contrast, a random number generator is by definition, something that has no pattern to it. It's completely random. So the random number generator becomes a useful device to test the degree of order in the physical world. So normally these the devices, I have one over here somewhere. Oh, I'd love them. Oh, so you can see one. Okay. Yeah, so here's, here's an example of one which is purely quantum because what happens, you shoot a, a photon is produced, a single photon, which hits a mirror, which is half silvered. And so the photon will either bounce off or it'll go through the decision that the photon makes is considered to be completely random. And so this produces random bits, zeros and ones, based on with the direction that the photon goes. Wow. This one's kind of expensive, but there are other ones that cost like $50. And just to give you, for those who are listening rather than watching right now, the, Dean has just shown me a random number generator and it's literally the size of an iPhone. It is not, it is not a big, oh, yeah, big it's a thing. Bit. It's a very, very small uh, machine. I think that might be a more expensive one. Yeah, that was expensive. This is another one. Mm -hmm. uh, this one's not too expensive. But again, these are tiny little things. Mm. Fantastic. So how do they work? So thank you for explaining how they work, because I think that's really good for people to understand the science behind this. So what have you witnessed? What's your research shown with these? 
So these are used in experiments where we want to see uh, what happens when somebody either attends, they place their attention on one of these generators, and sometimes directly, but sometimes indirectly. Like we'll pull bits off of the device in real time and then plot a little graph on a screen. And so you may give somebody instructions to simply make the thing produce more one bits and now produce more zero bits. And if that happened, then you would see the graph progressively move up or you'd see it progressively move down. So that's how you would tell that you're influencing it. More interesting study, and by the way, that was done for 50 years. So we know that that works. It's a very small effect, but it works. What then somebody got the, the bright idea, this is Roger Nelson at Princeton uh, when I was working there too. He said, maybe you don't need to ask somebody to intend that the, the random generator does something. Maybe you just place your attention on it because attention is kind of a coherent form of thought. And so the, maybe the attention would do something. So he went into groups like meditation groups and, and other groups that were doing something coherent within the group and simply placed a random number generator in the group without even telling people that it's there to see if the, this field of coherent thought would cause a device which should be random to be somewhat less random. Hmm. To make a long story short, the answer is yes, it does become less random. So 1998, we had the idea of putting these random number generators in major cities around the world, have them run 24 seven, and collect all of the data. And then we would take advantage of large scale events in the world that we knew would attract a lot of attention. So today we have uh, like million person meditations, but there are also things like the opening ceremony of the Olympics and acts of terrorism and things that the media carries where we can predict that uh, tens to hundreds of millions of people are all paying attention to the same event at the same time. Mm. So that is an unusual kind of coherence in a, in a mental state. And we thought, well, let, let's see what happens to all these generators around the world when during these periods where you suddenly have lots of minds becoming coherent. And the answer is that the random number generators stop behaving randomly. They wow. start showing patterns. And we know what patterns to look for based on previous experiments. So we did a formal experiment from 1998 to 2015 where we decided we would stop when we got to 500 major events around the world. So in each case, typically millions or more people doing the same thing at the same time, or at least paying attention to it. And the, the final result uh, was a seven sigma result, which a physicist would understand immediately. It means that the odds against chance of what we saw was three trillion to one. Wow. So, so you've tested the veracity of this pretty closely with Seven Sigma. Mm. Yeah. So it took a long time, it took uh, 17 years to collect the data on this, because fortunately, these huge events don't happen very often. But when you, you look at what's happening, it suggests that as a metaphor, there's something like an ocean of consciousness or a field of consciousness that we're all embedded in. We're part of it and we're embedded in it in some way. Most of the time, if, you're, if you want to detect that a tsunami is occurring in an ocean, you put buoys all over the ocean. And if you're able to measure what, what each buoy is doing at any given time, like where it's pointing, it would be completely random because they're all separate. But if there's something huge comes along, like a gigantic wave, then all of the buoys start acting in accordance with each other. And you can detect that right away. 
So our random number generators are floating in an ocean of consciousness. And when something big comes along, it's like, it's like a tsunami and you can detect it in the, the way that these, these random generators are, are changing. So the other metaphor is uh, when Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars says that he felt a disturbance in the force. In, in a sense, that's what we're measuring. We're measuring a disturbance in some kind of field which is related to the physical world and the mental world both, but we can see that. So what are some recent events in that? So that was 2015, um, your 17-year experiment. What were some of the events, the big events that you looked at? Well, it's still going. We're now about 23 years already. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, this involved things like um, New Year celebrations in each time zone as it goes around the world. So there's 37 time zones. Some are off by half an hour and so on, but it's 37 times where people would be paying attention to the change of the new years. Some of those time zones are over water, so there's hardly anybody paying attention. So when it's over land and we infer that there are people, you see a change every hour in in the random number generators. And when it's over the ocean, much, much less change. Mm. So that's one kind of event. The others, as I mentioned, were Olympics, uh, deaths of major celebrities or political figures, elections, um, big sports games, things like that. So you would have seen a lot of action in this last year with the pandemic, the riots in the US, the US election. You must have uh, been witnessing a few, a few uh, patterns there. So uh, the pandemic is unusual because it's a very, very slow-moving event. Right. It, it's an event that's not over yet, so it's, it's mm-hmm. going to be like two years maybe as an event. So all of the previous events that we've looked at typically were over in a matter of hours. Right. So and, and, that's, and that's the way that our analysis was designed to look at something over hours, sometimes maybe a day, mm. but never an entire year or two years. You need a huge amount of data to be able to see that. To understand that. So we'll leave that to one side at, at this point. You're obviously, we'll be looking at, it, but looking at that, but in a different way. I know, I understand that you put burn. Uh, random number generators at Burning Man. Could you explain what you were looking for there and, and what, you, what you witnessed? So Burning Man is a, a big festival in, in the desert. We, we didn't have one this year. So no, in the I... desert, in, in the middle of nowhere in Nevada, there are uh, up to 70,000 or more people would attend an event that doesn't really have an easy description other than being somewhere between anything goes and psychedelics and art and all kinds of stuff. Having been there myself, I, I've been there a couple of times, and you're right. It's a bit like Mad Max meets meets yeah, any, anything goes, isn't it? It's a fascinating event. Yeah, amazing. So there are two major events that happen at Burning Man. One is was the burning of the man, mm-hmm. which happens at the end of, of the seven days or so. So it's a usually it's a big man made out of wood, and then they make a gigantic bonfire about it, and it's a big celebratory event. The next day is the burning of the temple. So the temple is a place where put, people put remembrances of loved ones who have died and other things. And it's a, it, that is burned as well, but it's a much more solemn mm-hmm. occasion. So those, are the, those are the two events where basically everybody comes together to do. And so we ran the random number generators uh, before, during, and after both of those events with the prediction that during those two events, we would see coherence arising both in people's attention and also in the random generators. And that's more or less what we found. We also discovered that because Burning Man is in the middle of a desert with no electricity, 
that it's not a good place to run experiments <laughs> because we had, we had sensitive electronic equipment and it didn't like the dust and the batteries and all the rest. It's a it tough still work though. Yeah. I, I, look, hats off to you because um, having been there, it's an extremely physically tough environment and that player dust is, is like no other. It sticks in everywhere. So Yes, your your equipment probably wouldn't have would not have loved it. I know I've taken my laptop there and wasn't wasn't great. So, so what did you find with those two events? There's a different energy, the burning of the man. You're right; it's a big, it's like a big bonfire, it's a big celebration. The temple is a much uh, more solemn. Uh, I don't want to use with the deep, but it's a more solemn event. Did you see differences in the number that the patterns generated between a happy, let's call it a, a happy event and a solemn event? Could you see the difference in it, in that process? No. No, there, there wasn't much of a difference. Right. We, it, we've tried a similar thing with the, the Global Consciousness Project, where we have, because we had so many different kinds of events, we can categorize happy events and sad events and horrific events and so on. There's, there's small differences. Mm -hmm. so meditation events, you tend to get a certain kind of order appearing in the random generators. Terrorist events, you get a different kind of order. They're both orderly, except that they're, we're talking about variance measures. The variance goes in different directions. Mm -hmm. so we, we don't know why that is. That's just what happens. So that's really despite that. But what that proves up more than anything is that where there's focused attention from the group, that that it has an influence on, it has an influence on reality, basically. It has an influence on the physical world at large. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So much to go into there, but I want to move on with the time we've got to talk a bit about then. So that's really about attention. I'd like to delve into now a bit this, this concept of, of intention. And we've sort of touched on it, but you talk in the book about blessing water that make, when we bless water, it can make plants grow better, um, casting positive intentions into food. Could you share some of the science behind intention? And I was, fasc I was fascinated to read in the book about your your Silicon Valley office synchronicity. Um, I don't know, but I guess if, if, I guess we could just talk a bit about intention and, and and share with us some of your experiences in that space. Intention is desire, want, will. It's wanting something. Mm. So the the question is uh, prayer. Oftentimes, religious or otherwise, it often is asking for something. Uh, sometimes it's for peace on earth, but oftentimes it's more specific than that, a particular person to be well mm. or to get a certain thing. So that's an expression of desire. The question is, does it do anything other than make us feel good? And so they, these are the experiments that we do now, whether it's uh, involving food or beverage or random number generators, because that's all about intention too. What we find is that um, almost every kind of target system that we've been able to measure, with the exception of static targets, which by that I mean like a, like a, a rock. You have a rock, it's very static, it's not going to move around by itself. Could intention move that rock? Could it make it levitate? Well, possibly, except we never see that happen. So we don't know whether you need to be the one in a billion person who has special talent who can do that because we don't have access to those people. Uh, so we use things that are much easier to move and may have some inherent randomness in it anyway. So human behavior is one of those things. We are highly random, not quite random, but we're highly dynamic systems. So in our experiment where we were uh, using 
tea, for example, where we had uh, Buddhist monks bless tea, oolong tea, and then had a, a, the batch from the same original batch, we had blessed tea and not blessed tea. And the variable that we wanted to manipulate was mood. So people would drink the tea under blinded conditions. They didn't know what kind of tea they got. And they were asked to record their mood. And the people getting the blessed tea under blinded conditions got, had better mood. And we did the same thing with chocolate. We did the same thing with growth of plants and so on. There are lots and lots of experiments looking at uh, does the, an act of focused intention change something, either the structure of the object or its be, usually its behavior in some way? And the answer is yes, it does, usually to a small extent. Not always small, but usually pretty small. And so uh, we just recently finished a study where we worked with energy healers, uh, 17 different modalities of energy healing, and clients all were uh, presenting with carpal tunnel pain. So we were able to show that in a single half hour session with 190 patients, with the 17 healers doing their thing one at a time, a very significant reduction in pain. So that's, I mean, that's the clinical outcome, but we also use water as a proxy for the body. So the healer wore a necklace with a little vial of water and the client or the patient also wore it. And we, the reason we did that was to check the struct, the molecular structure of the water before and after the healing session to see if it changed hmm. because we're belts are 70% water. So what we found was a significant change in the, the hydrogen oxygen bonds in the water around the necklace of the healer, but not around the necklace of the patient. So wow. We don't, we don't know exactly what to make of that other than there was a significant change in, in a proxy for the body, this little vial of water around the, the healer. So maybe there's a field or something, field effect. We don't, we don't know. And the healer wasn't that far away from the client. So whether, whatever that field might be, it was pretty tightly contained around the healer. So the healer, and what we're, I guess what you're saying there is the healer had an intention for healing and this intention for the healing came into the water that was on their body. Wow. So again, this is this power of intention. So, and with the, the, the blessing of the water, because I guess my question is when you think about the tea, well, the mood, maybe the mood of people was different to start with. So if I got the blessed tea, um, how did you sort of check the, how did you make that, a, I guess, a, check the veracity of that experiment? So we used the, a design which is used in medical experiments called a, uh, a, a randomized clinical trial. Mm -hmm. So what you do is we, in the case of the T, we started with 200 people. They were randomly assigned to the condition where they get one or the other. Mm -hmm. They're blind as to what they were getting. Mm -hmm. They knew because of the informed consent that they might get blessed tea or they might not, but we weren't going to tell them. Mm. In fact, the person handing out the little vials of tea didn't know either. That's what made it double blind. So nobody along the way knew who, what anybody was getting is only the code was broken at the very end of the study uh, for the analysis to be done. And so we could also then test as you typically do in these cases, are the two groups the same when they begin? That's so sort of what I was getting. That was, that was where I was going. Mm. Yeah. So we're checking based on one particular uh, personality uh, trait called neuroticism because uh, the mood variation 
is positively correlated with the degree to which you're neurotic. People who are neurotic have bigger swings in, in the mood. So we wanted to make sure that the degree of neuroticism was the same in the two groups and about the same age and same gender and so on. And all the people came from Taiwan and the same city in Taiwan. So we tried to reduce variables that might show a difference uh, and still ended up with a significant effect. Wow, that's, that's really fascinating. So intention has a huge impact on, on the outcomes that we're going to get. So that's, that's the science of it, which is for anyone, any skeptics listening, that's um, certainly Dean has done a lot of work in this space to really to prove this up. So I guess then- um, I, I would just correct one thing. I would say that the effects that we see are real mm-hmm. from a statistical perspective. The magnitude of the effects tends to be small. Right. Because remember, we're, we're not doing spontaneous, big psychic things in the world. We're, we're constraining what we want to see by virtue of the design of the experiment. So we can have very high confidence that it was a real effect, but the size of the effects tends to be pretty small. But I guess my question would be then, if someone is positively intending to have, you know, if one was to look at different segments of their day and positively intend throughout those segments of the day or to bring their intention, their awareness up to their intention, that could then help have them little, help them have little gains throughout the day. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. So in terms of the, the I mean, there's so much here where we're running tight on time. Um, one of the things that you talk about in Real Magic is that there's lots of literature that is, is sort of is lapping up this kind of thing now, the power of intention, you know, you mentioned various books that have been written, things like The Secret and so on and so forth. What I think is interesting is that not everything has, not everyone has, seems to be able to use this, if you like, magic in, in the same way. They don't seem to get what they want. Um, what is that, what's going on there? Is this about the role of my conscious mind versus my subconscious? What, what's happening there? It is partially a clash between conscious and unconscious desire. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that... Uh, most people who are overweight would like to lose weight and yet they find their arm reaching for the candy bar mm. and eating it. So uh, it's, we have self-defeating properties, which is the clash that happens between conscious and unconscious. So one of the things that, that uh, makes an intention much stronger is if they're in alignment with each other. Mm. And it's not easy because by definition, you don't know what's going on in your unconscious. So one of the values of meditation is that in a sense, you can drop your conscious awareness farther and farther down. And in the process, you might find conflicts arising because there is a mismatch Mm. between conscious and unconscious, but you work through it and eventually can become more and more coherent. One of the reasons I think that stress is reduced is because you you start working through things that are clashing otherwise at Mm. the unconscious level. And as a result, your ability to intend and make something happen also increases. So, so again, back to this golden thread of meditation, Dean. In every interview pretty much that I've done on Your Freedom Unlimited, this golden thread of meditation comes through. It's such a, a powerful tool. And great to hear it. You just to hear you describe it so simply in those terms, in that it's a tool that we can use to gain greater coherence within ourselves between the subconscious and the unconscious. Right. Have you done any research in that space or is, is that a little out of your area? What we've done is, uh, first of all, we tend to, to work with meditators rather than not, mainly because uh, meditation as an intention training system 
means that if we ask somebody to do something, they're likely to actually be able to do it because all of the psychic phenomena are about how you're using your attention and your intention. Mm. If I ask somebody to pay attention to water, to bless it, they have to be able to do that. Most people who, who don't have any training will have the equivalent of ADHD. And, and so they'll do the, they'll, you can see this actually in their EEG for about five seconds, they'll do the task. And then they start dreaming of cheeseburgers. Their mind will wander immediately. And that reduces the strength of the effect that we're, we're hoping to find. Mm. So I, one of the questions we generally ask people then is, do you have any meditative practice at all or some other activity that requires highly focused attention for long periods of time? Either one will work. And people generally do better if they, if they have that skill uh, simply because, as I said, they can then do the task, whereas otherwise their mind wanders. Mm. So again, we're hearing yeah, this power of meditation to, yes, to shape, to, to, I mean, there's so many benefits of meditation in terms of health and uh, well-being, stress, as you said, reducing anxiety, but this is sort of the next level in terms of really helping to influence and shape your life. Um, again, what the ancients knew you're finding to be proven up in science. So it's great. To, and, and your work overall, Dean, is, is just fascinating in that you've looked at the the ancients, you've looked at those Eastern esoteric traditions, you've looked at the Western traditions, and then now very much on the cutting edge of, of exploring all of this for us. It's um, it's it's really, really fascinating. Um, before we close, I just wanted to ask, is there any specific research that you're working on right now that you're finding really fascinating that you wanted to, to share with us? One of the projects I'm working on now, we call Genes, which is looking at the genetic basis for psychic talent. Wow. So every culture has folklore about certain people and certain families having this skill, whereas others don't. Mm. And, and only one previous study was done in Northern Scotland among families who said that they had second sight, which is generally like a, a premonition skill that people have. So a colleague of mine uh, back in 1993 published a, a paper where she interviewed people to see if this might be an actual inherited trait. And she concluded that it, it did follow what you'd expect if this was actually a genetic trait. So we decided uh, a few years ago to use the tools of modern genetics to take the DNA of people who are psychic from psychic families and compare it to people who report no psychic effects at all in their families or themselves and just see where, are the genomes the same or not? Well, it turns out they're not. So we we're, have a paper that's been submitted to a journal, it's not published yet, but it reports the results of our first go round on this, comparing uh, the genes of what we call cases and controls, psychic cases and controls, and describe the, the chromosome and the genetic sequence that was different between the two. So it, it looks more likely than not that there actually is a genetic basis, uh, it's not in the coding DNA. So DNA, uh, you, you may know that when, when you sequence the entire genome, 95% of it does not code for protein. So, and we're made up of protein. So it, used to, it was thought before the genome was, was sequenced that we must have tens of thousands of genes that specify how we're made up. 
But that's not the case. We have about the same number of coding genes as a banana. Really? So, yeah. So 95% of our genes used to be called junk DNA because they didn't know what it did. Well, it turns out that it's not junk, that it's, it turn, it's very important in terms of uh, switching on and off epigenetic traits. So we have all of these, we have like a, we have a body, of course, but we have all these traits that are inherent that could be switched on or off. So one of the things that happens in meditation is that uh, epigenetic switches are turned that actually make you healthier mentally and physically. That's one of the benefits of meditation. It also may turn out based on our study that there is an epigenetic switch for psychic ability because we found this in a non-coding part of the genome. How fascinating is that? So if I'm what I'm hearing you say correctly is there's this 95% of the genome that we don't, we haven't really looked at. So there's a whole sort of world there that's unknown, but I could turn the switch on for my psychic ability just as much as I could turn it off. Well, 10 years ago, I would have said that people weren't looking at it, but today we're looking at it in great detail. More detail, okay. Because, because first of all, techniques to be able to look at it uh, and the ability to code the entire genome uh, of, of any individual. The first time that that was done to get the, the first human genome cost like $3 billion. Now it costs uh, probably on average about $1,000. And you can find places that will, I just saw one on the web the other day, $150 to produce the entire genome because it's on special sale. So yeah. I, don't know how good the, I don't know how good the quality is, but nevertheless, they'll, they'll give you something. So it's a, it's a huge long file. You have lots and lots of pieces of DNA, most of which don't code. And we're only now beginning to learn what it actually does. It's not there by accident. And a little piece of it looks like it, it's related to psychic ability. Wow. How interesting. And this epigenetic concept of turning on or off. So does that mean then with intention, one could, again, I don't want to blow, blow your thunder on that research and, and so on, but does that mean if, with one in, if we talk about intention that we were talking about earlier, one could uh, open up those abilities for oneself? If you have the genetic capacity. Right. Right. We, we have different talents. So that you think a psychic ability is a kind of a talent, which I think it is. Uh, then yeah, you could probably modulate it. Hmm. Uh, whereas if you don't have a talent to play tennis, sorry, you're not gonna you're not gonna be a champion. That's right. You you might be able to get on the court and hit a ball around, but perhaps not be as great as the as those who. De- and again, this is about devotion, isn't it? Devoting your focus to something. And we were talking about focus being so important. Right. Mm. Well, Dean, I just want to say thank you so much for giving us such a comprehensive overview of your life's work, where it came from, you know, that fascinating fascination as a child to, to these questions and then now to have devoted your life to it. You've shared, you've been very generous with your time today and you've shared so much with us. Um, I have found it absolutely fascinating personally and, and I know those listening will as well. But it's this bringing together of, of the looking at the ancient, ancient traditions with, with modern science that's helping us make some sense of who we really are. Mm-hmm. So for people to find out more about you and the work that you're doing, where would you like them to, to go? So I work at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So the word noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C.org. That's the, the place where I work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my personal website is deanradin.com or deanradin.net or no, org, deanradin.org. They both go to the same place. 
Fantastic. Well, we will definitely, I will definitely be putting those links in the show notes, as well as links to your book, Real Magic, and and uh, your, your previous book about the Eastern traditions. I think that's very interesting as well. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for your time and your generosity, but also for this bigger picture work that you're doing on behalf of all of us. You've got an incredible intellect and and a very curious mind, and and we're very, very lucky to have you doing the work that you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. And I wanted to say thank you so much for listening to that great interview with myself and Dean Radin, PhD, who's also the chief scientist of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. In that interview, Dean again talked about the power of meditation, such a common theme through all of our episodes here on Your Freedom Unlimited. To help you with that, I wanted to remind you that I have got a free guide to help you get started with meditation. In that guide, I share with you how to actually start meditating. I share with you how to deal with a lot of the common roadblocks that we can we can encounter when we have to when we want to start meditating. And I also give you two free guided meditations to help you get started on your way. So if you'd like to grab that guide, feel free to go to jenramsey.com forward slash begin. And please take advantage of that for yourself. And meditation is so amazing. It does so much for us from a health perspective, from a reduction of stress and anxiety and depression, all the way through to really getting to know ourselves and really coming to understand who we really are. And that's exactly what Dean shared with us in that fantastic interview. So I really encourage you to grab that guide. All you need to do is go to jenramsey.com forward slash begin. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Your Freedom Unlimited. If you like this show, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review Your Freedom Unlimited on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach me directly at jenramsey.com. Thanks for listening.